In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Every new experience brings maturity over time. Through exposure, we develop resilience. We learn how to respond in a healthy way. On today's podcast, we discuss the art of not panicking. I want to start with a story about me being in the middle of the ocean. You're out in the middle of the ocean and you're floating. Are you on a boat? A boat took me out there. Let me, let me, let me back. Is this like the SNL skit? No. I'm on a boat. It's a good skit, but no. (laughs) No, this was, um, I had a a very good friend and she had worked over the summer down at the Jersey Shore. You you know, when we were younger, you used to be able to afford working down there and you could stay the entire summer. So she had worked the entire summer and in Avalon. So she met a lot of people and she invited me one weekend. I said, okay. Um, she met a very wealthy individual who lived in Avalon. This guy and I got along really well. And he goes, hey, you know, now this is going to be SNL skate. You want to <laughs> go out on a boat? And I'm like, yeah. They had one of those giant power boats, like mm-hmm. big, giant, super power boats. So it was myself and him, my friend, and a couple other people. And um, it was one of the, probably the second time I've ever actually been out in the ocean on a, on, on a boat. We go out there in the middle of the, drives us out about 15 miles. Mm. Okay. When you're out in the middle of the ocean, you look around. Um, there's there's moments of panic. There's moments of serenity. I mean, it's really incredible. You couldn't see. You land. can't see land. Yeah. Okay. You can't see land. And um, we are, you know, just sitting there. That starts blaring music. Just parks the boat. No, no anchor. I don't know how deep it is. He looks at me, taps me on the back, and he goes, "Let's go." Claps his hands, and he does a little flippy into the water. And I'm looking at the other ladies on board, and I'm like, okay. So I jump in. Oh, no. The moment I jumped in, I felt like I had to. I felt like I was kind of, you know, pressured to, but I also felt incredibly scared. Well, when the moment I jumped in, my worst nightmare was like, what is underneath me? <laughs> what, what am I doing? And as soon as I jumped in, it felt like the boat was like 30 feet away from me with oh, yeah. instantaneously. Yeah. Yep. That's how quick the... You know, mm-hmm. the tide is, or the, or the, um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm sitting there and I have to kind of put on this stoic face, this, oh, meanwhile, my mind is racing. It's, I am, my heart is racing. I'm scared. I'm scared. And You're I'm urinating in the ocean. I was, I did not do that. There was red dye. I did not do that. <laughs> but I'm telling you, I was scared uh-huh. and I began to panic. And in that moment, I kept my face as um, what I thought was, you know, not showing it because I wouldn't try to be strong, but I was panicking. The boat was going further away. So I started to paddle, you know, t- swim toward the boat. It kept getting further and further away. And I, what I recognize is the more that I panicked or reacted to that panic, it seemed like the further my goal of getting back to the boat was. Mm. And so I thought today for this podcast, um, just sharing that story, I'd, I'd actually like to maybe find out what's the art of not panicking. Well, this is a great metaphor, right? The the harder you work towards trying to get to something, the further away that it goes. It's like quicksand, right? Yeah. If you're in quicksand, your best thing to do is just nothing. Yeah, there is a paradoxical effect with um, that exists with our experience with fear and anxiety. And like when you talk about like what panic is, panic is actually the fear of fear. So you have this anxiety response because it's a threatening situation. And then that anxiety creates another anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, oh shit, right? Like something bad is about to happen. I could die. And that's what we see what the development of panic attacks are. Panic attacks are uh, the fear of the experience, the physiological reaction to whatever's provoking that fear you misinterpret those sensations as imminent danger. 
And so what makes something panic, it's usually short in duration. It's rather intense. A lot of people think that they might have a heart attack. They can't breathe. They hyperventilate. They pass out. They get so hot or sweaty. You know, so it's a very, very scary event. And when you have it one time, then there's this vigilance to the experience again that influences the likelihood that it will happen. And you could develop what's called panic disorder, mm -hmm. which is first having a panic attack and then the fear of having future panic attacks. So to protect against the fear of having future panic attacks, you start restricting your life. So you really change things, right? Um, the feeling of getting really hot is like a predictor that you could have another panic attack. So you stop doing anything that if could make you feel you like hot. yourself start sweating in the moment and then you start almost hyperventilating. Yeah. You get, you get fearful of having your heart rate increase. Mm. So you, you might, can't control the physiological reactions. Well, I, I do think we can institute kind of control over our own physiological reactions, but if you know, this is going to get into, I think a lot of the dialogue that we have today, because it's about that, that mind over, over body and emotion right? Like you almost have to develop a new relationship to it. You have to understand it, what's happening, and you have to accept its presence exactly like you did when you were in the water, right? You had to accept you were in a dangerous spot. You knew the harder you worked to try to avoid the dangerous situation you were in, the worse you were going to make it, uh, the worse it could be because you're just going to exert all that energy and you gave up the fight and you accepted the situation, you probably go into like that dead man's float kind of yeah, uh, situation. Yeah, I just, I just, I looked up at the sky and just kind of pretended that I was having fun. And before you know it, you start floating closer to the boat, right? Mm -hmm. It's a great analogy for the acceptance-based movement of, of fear and anxiety. But in the modern day men mental health field or geez, the medical field, how panic is actually treated is uh, in a way that's going to make the situation worse. You're given a drug. So if, you're, if your relationship to that emotion of anxiety or fear, or the physical sensation is one of danger, it kind of reinforces that it's dangerous. So you're turning to a substance to try to relieve it. And for a lot of people, it's not just a, a drug, uh, like a benzodiazepine or something like that. It could also be alcohol. Uh, smoking weed, right? Like you're so fearful of the experience that you're working hard to not feel it or to numb yourself from it. And you can see how that exacerbates the entire problem. You're starting to develop a relationship to your fear, one that's it's, it's dangerous. You need to avoid it completely. And before you know it, it runs your life. I got a question. So maybe once every four or five months, in the middle of the night, I have like a nightmare and my wife will wake me up because she says that I'm breathing heavily, like doing the <laughs> almost like I'm running away from someone or something and she'll just kind of put her hand on my shoulder and kind of pull me out of that moment and I'll wake up. My heart is racing. Sometimes I get hot and sweaty um, and I'll realize that it was a dream and I'll go back to sleep. And it just happened maybe about three weeks ago. And I often don't remember what it was, but in that moment I said two words to her and it helped me remember in the morning what my nightmare was about. Ooh, interesting. What was the nightmare about? Those, those two words <laughs> was... The Shining. <laughs> I was just gonna say Red Rum. <laughs> no, just the the Shining, and and I I all of a sudden like I, I got the feeling back and I knew exactly what my nightmare was. So remember in, in the movie, there's that one scene. Jack uh, Nicholas Nicholas Nicholson Jack Nichols, Nicholas Nicholson. is is um going to um go into that room and there's like that naked woman in there that like hugs him and it turns into the old woman. So uh, I, in my dream, am going into that room and it's not, there's, there's no naked woman. So I don't have like this like nice moment. It's that I know that that old decrepit woman is in the bathroom and I, in my mind, I know that she's there and I just keep walking closer towards it or towards her. And that's when I start like breathing heavy to get myself to like, stop, don't go, don't go, don't go. And I keep moving forward. And, 
and eventually I just, I kind of wake up. Is that a panic attack in my sleep? That's a reoccurring dream. I've had it. I don't know if I've had the same exact one multiple times, but I have that heavy breathing nightmare and she'll wake up and wake me up. But it's always the room in The Shining. I've, I think I've had that multiple times, but I've, I think I've had other dreams also. The ones, you know, like where you're trying to run away from somebody in slow motion or you're trying to punch them and you can't move your arms fast enough. Is that just a nightmare or is that like a panic attack in my sleep? No, I'm not going to call it a, a panic attack because it, it doesn't reach that threshold. But, but it, my heart is, you know, racing yeah. and I'm, I'm it, sweating it, at times. It's a fight or flight response, right? You're, you're in a hot, you're in a, you're experiencing a lot of fear based on what's going on in the dream. Panic attacks, you know, people think they're dying. You know, panic attacks. They think they're having like a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's really rough. I th- you know, people also have panic attacks when they, when the emotion or the sensation is associated with something like that's dangerous. So it's not always just a heart attack. Some people question whether they're having a stroke because you get blurred vision, mm-hmm. you know, and you're just, you're anxious about the sensations that are happening. It's a different level of in, being incapacitated or impaired than, you know, just a couple of minutes of your heart racing. I mean, that's high anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we have that in a lot of different situations. It's a nervous system's reaction to a, to a threat. Yeah. But you were, we were talking about, like, when we talk about panic in society, like, we don't have to have an entire conversation today about panic disorder. We can have uh, you know, a conversation about what is going on in society where people's reactions um, are just so much more in, intensified. Like, here we are. Like, you guys watch the Oscars. Yeah. I saw that. I saw the slap. <laughs> well, first of all, you, you first, you don't question that that's real. Right, like, did you think like that was that was fake, that was staged? My my gut reaction was that it was staged immediately. Me too. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, then you you rewind it and you watch it, and you're like, well, that was actually, you know, when they cut out the sound. Yeah, that's when I realized, oh wait a minute, and then they cut the camera to him, and he was you know screaming. And but pointing. my gut reaction was because I just don't trust. <laughs> I have a big. I'm, uh, I'm not in a good relationship with Hollywood. Yeah, me so, too. I, I had the same gut reaction. But like here we are in society, there's just a higher level of emotional discontrol, right? So like people are acting in ways that just were not socially acceptable previously. And the intensity of the reactions just seems so much more elevated mm-hmm. than at any other point. Like it's almost unbelievable that someone like someone of the stature of Will Smith during the Oscars can walk up on a stage and assault a comedian without any repercussion. Yeah. Other than like an Instagram apology. Well, there could be repercussions. They just haven't announced anything yet. But yeah, the fact that he just wasn't walked out of that He wasn't. They tried to... Or... He won an Oscar and was able to give a speech. (laughs) Like... They'll take it away from him. That's my (laughs) prediction. Maybe they do. Probably. But... It just speaks a little bit to the culture that we're in right now. And people are on edge and they have been for a while and they're, they're acting strange. It's I feel like it's like there's a disconnection from reality in so many ways that has was prompted by everything that went on pandemic and post pandemic. Yeah. Like there's a loss of connection and grounding to what is real. And then the reactions around People, my goodness, like the the things that we accept now in society from politicians, from professionals would never have been accepted in previous generations. Like there was a balance that existed. Uh, You know, the media provided that important balance. It would keep politicians in check. They had a role or responsibility to inform uh, the people. And you can get voted out of office. You can can be held accountable for your actions. Where's the accountability is just not there. Yeah. Can we, I'm going to stay with that for a second and I want to, um, I want to tie panic into bias. I'm going to try to try to hear me out. Make this connection for me. All right. So in our media, uh, well, actually, yeah, in our media class, I teach a lot about, you know, Google algorithms, things like that. So we know that, and this is not nefarious, but what their whole premise would be is to, if I search and I search, they're trying to individualize, you know, my searches for me, mm-hmm. which in the end can actually create bias in my brain as, you know, because if I'm searching for something and they're only giving me certain results. They're giving you what you think you want. Correct. 
So if all I know is that, and then something else comes out of nowhere, it's almost like, again, almost like a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Just, I don't want to believe it. And my immediate reaction would be, I don't want to listen. I want to cancel it. I, you know, go away. How much, how much does like media does maybe, I don't want to go so far as government, but let's talk about media play a role in our, in, 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 in our anxiety or our panic. Like we panic at the, at anything that comes out of nowhere. Mm. We just react. We're a reactionary culture. Now we, what you said is there used to be two sides to everything. That's what journalists used to bring about even in, one article or at least a search for truth or, or search for truth. Yeah. Now I feel as if that's, that's, let's, that's gone. All right. Let's talk about the impact on culture. So here we are, we have a, um, we're doing a dialectical behavior therapy treatment for adolescents and parents. And, uh, we're doing a pilot study where, uh, we're doing a separate parent training. And in the parent training, we're talking a lot about modeling because how, how you model certain skillful reactions or behavioral responses are learned by your children, right? Mm -hmm. It's an important way that, that children learn. So we do learn through observation and we also learn through rewards and punishments, right? So when you, to learn socially acceptable behavior, right? You're watching what, how other people are reacting and you're seeing how it's either getting reinforced or rewarded um, and also whether it's um, your own experience of trial and error and how you react, how, you know, what do you get from it? Is it, it, are you rewarded? Does it serve a function or a purpose for you? So what we're constantly watching, whether it's social media, on the news, from the media, the streams, it's almost starting to set this norm for what is behavior. What is acceptable right now in this moment. Right. Yeah. And in a rage culture, when there is a, you know, a, a push for a division and you can now act in ways that previously were punished because you were viewed as out of control mm -hmm. or not trusted, are rewarded. And listen, you know, Donald Trump is, an, is part of an example of this because his, his behavior, which is typically viewed as not not professional political it was now rewarded as like an everyday man an outsider you know so when you can send out mean tweets or you can call people names or another politician names it automatically begins to lower the level of discourse mm -hmm. of respectful discourse and it's rewarded because you can achieve that level of presidency you know it, you can almost see that culture now has kind of continued to progress and I didn't like that. And the idea that, um, you know, people could view someone like that as an outsider or a maverick or someone who's disrupting a system, I, you know, I never saw it because I didn't think calling names is a way to disrupt a, a, a system, right? And, and what ends up happening is often the response, you feel like you have to defend yourself and almost attack back. But we, we just came off of this Stoicism podcast where there are lessons in there that say when when people attack you or or they're evil in their response, I'm not going to quote this accurately, but or if they're evil in their doings, your best response is to not respond because it's almost like you're giving it power. Right? The reaction is the problem, not the problem itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what are we starting to learn now? Like emotional control mm -hmm. is no longer valued and rewarded in the same way. But emotional discontrol is impulsive behavior, impulsive, reactionary, emotionally reactive behaviors are justified, are rewarded. You can even achieve power through it. That's concerning, right? Because what the Stoics would say, you know, those who anger me, you know, become my master, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we've, our standards have been lowered. Our standards have been lowered. And I'm hearing this uh, across the board um, in, my, in my clinical work from people in very in different professional capacities, from educators and teachers to business owners. Um, there is now some justification to act in a way that is outside of what would be respect, respectable discourse 
if you somehow feel like your opinion or your viewpoint is justified. So let's use this. You brought up Will Smith, so I'm going to bring it back up again. How Chris Rock responded in that moment, which was a crisis situation, right? He was, someone was coming at him and attacked him. And frankly, the way that he responded was the most mature way that he I've ever pa- seen. He didn't panic. No, he did not panic. Let's tie this back into to panic. He stood there. He weighed the situation. He recognized what had just happened. And then he thought about how his response could damage the situation even more. And what he did was, as a comedian, you know, made a joke about it and then tried to carry forward. I thought that was a very mature way of, of handling the situation. I think he handled it as well as anyone could be expected in a situation like that. Much better than I could have. And he, it may have been shock. Yeah, there was some shock there. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't see how, how can there you wasn't. Not be <laughs> Probably because he didn't was like, "What the hell just happened?" Right? Yeah. Um, but some people in that moment, when you get smacked like that, you would fight back. It's your, no, it's your first reaction, right? And he didn't fight or flight. Yeah. Yep. So let's talk about that moment, and um, there's all of the emotions that come into play during the time that you actually feel that. Um, that panic, all of the physiological things. What are some of the unhelpful emotions? Can we get like pinpoint versus like things that we should in moments of panic? Like what happens in in that moment? Well, first of all, I don't want to phrase, you know, emotions as unhelpful. Anything there is designed to help you. So I think if you want to talk about what is the art of yes. uh, not panicking, mm-hmm. right? How how do you how are you able to develop some emotional control? There's a step by step process, like, and there's ways we can train ourselves to do it. I'm not saying it's easy; it's difficult, but you can make changes in in your life with intentionality. And intentionality is this idea that almost every morning you're going to think about or meditate on something you want to change. Now, a lot of people want to change their reactions. If you think about the worst reactions that you've ever had in in your life, they're likely impulsive, emotionally reactive in response to a stressor, right? Most of us, because listen, we are... Or they were brought on by like alcohol consumption or something like something stupid um, that you wish you... Probably probably a combination of both, right? Yeah. So like alcohol certainly lowers the inhibitions, right? And Mm -hmm. impairs your ability to, you know, think, you know... But does it heighten heighten emotion? uh, It can depress emotion. It could heighten emotion, yeah. Depending on the situation. Ultimately, alcohol is is a depressant, but it lowers inhibitions and other... Um, other cognitive abilities that are, you know, used to modulate emotion. So you are more pure emotional than you could be in that situation. But, um, you know, there's this, there's this, this saying where uh, you don't want to, you want to learn not to make a bad situation worse. So if you're in a high distress situation, uh, it's because something bad's likely happened, right? You're thrown overboard in a boat and it's drifting away or something unforeseen happened or dangerous or threatening or crisis oriented, or you're under a threat or you're smacked or you're a hit or whatever it is, right? It's a dangerous situation. So you're, or a a stressful situation. So your body is reacting from a pure biological perspective in order to survive in that particular situation. Your ability to be an observer versus a reactor is something that can be trained. So to be an observer of your internal experience means you are increasing consciousness and awareness of that experience. So you're able to observe your own thinking, your own emotional states. You are training yourself to do so. The way to to do that, the path to that, is through some meditative or mindful practice in your life. Uh, some reflective practice. You see this a lot. Um, you know, in social media, there is. You know, they, I follow some instant or some Instagram accounts that are talking about personal growth. Obviously, it's an area of interest for mine. There's a lot of things out there about daily journaling, intentional practice, meditation, edge thoughts, <laughs> edge thoughts. <laughs> and it, it's about 
it's about building that skill to observe your experience and then you choose your reaction. So mm-hmm. if you don't know you're stressed, if you don't understand where your mind's going, if you don't, if you can't just sit back and observe the situation you're in, you're reacting to it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you build that skill of being an observer versus a reactor. That's step one. So to that point, you know, Roger early on uh, brief conversation, we're having about something else said, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason and they're presented in front of you. I ordered Chinese food yesterday. You know what my fortune cookie said? It said, emotion is energy in motion. And I, I, I thought about it. I took a picture of it. And I was like, well, how do you control emotion? If it's energy in motion, you need to be that, that force that stops the energy, right? So if emotion is energy in motion, the way to stop it is to just be still right? Yeah. And think, yeah, that's how you control it. Boom. Podcast over. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there's steps to this. Um, And I think how you think about your internal experience matters, right? So right there, that's an example, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Emotion is energy and it's emotion and the energy is there. Can we take a non-reactive, non-judgmental, non-threatening stance to it? Okay. So what is a judgment? someone not agreeing with you or personal judgment personal judgment a judgment if you're going to take a non-judgmental stance with your own internal experience internal experience could be emotions physical sensations thoughts memories if you're going to take a non-judgmental stance what does that mean to you i mean judgment would be if i'm if i have my own biases and i'm judging someone based off of those. So I'm listening to my mind kind of bring out these thoughts about the person that I'm judging. So I'm all right, but I'm talking hard, about self judgment. So, all right, you so guys no, keep no, going. I know, I know. But then if I bring it into, if I bring it to myself, yeah. that still plays a role because if I'm okay, the last podcast we talked about, um, um, when I, when I had gone through depression, I said, yeah, people must've thought I was weak. You said, that's your... That's a self-judgment. Exactly. Yes, that's a great example. Yes. Okay, so your emotional experience has weakness. It shouldn't be there. I can't handle this. I am broken. Crap, I don't feel good. So all of those are judgments of the experience, right? So to cultivate a non-judgmental stance would be to, to be detached from your experience. It can come and it can go without judgment at all. So remember, I said that this is, this is difficult. Yeah, like, that's, that's really deep, right? Because you actually, you need to stop, right? There's, in DBT, in our distress tolerance skill, do you know one of the skills? Stop. Stop skill. <laughs> what does it stand for? It's uh, always an acronym, right? Yeah, it's uh, Sorry, stop, this take a step back, observe, then proceed. Yeah, okay. But it, yeah. it's this whole idea of being able to don't do anything. Yeah. Right, just when that happens and you observe it, it is best to do nothing. So, I like to rate emotional intensity on a scale. Let's say one to ten is easy, right? Let's just say when it's an eight, nine, or a ten, like that's high intensity emotion. Maybe that's the panic you're referring to. We generally are not performing well when our emotion is that high Mm -hmm. because it is clouding our thinking. It's a part of our brain, that reptilian brain, the amygdala is active, fight or flight. It's that developed part of our brain, that prefrontal cortex that is for thinking and problem solving and predicting and all that thing. That's, that's impaired in that, in that particular moment because we have to run, we have to fight, we have to stay alive. And so that gets in our way. So most of the situations we're panicking in are not that, right? Like you start walking across the, the street and a speeding car's coming you know, it's automatic. But a lot of the other things are like, you know, some, something happened at work. Something happened with your family. You know, and your emotional intensity increases and you, you, know, you want to scream, you want to yell, you, you get out, you get emotional discontrol. So to, to take an observing stance of your experience just to look at it from a distance without judgment, you begin to learn that what I feel can be there and I can act with it. 
So you are developing a new relationship. You have to learn to act in high intensity emotion. You can only train yourself to do that. So you're almost you're training your brain to work in your prefrontal cortex instead of your amygdala, right? Well, uh, it, it is. I mean, you're shifting because now you're thinking. But if you're kind of detaching and you're observing, you're going to lower the intensity of the emotion. You know you're, you've observed you're in a high-intensity state. How do you know that? Well, the physiological reactions. You're mm-hmm. hot, you're sweaty, your breathing's changed, your heart is beating. You're choosing not to act there. So maybe you, what you do is you just slow down your breathing, mm-hmm. right? You engage the parasympathetic nervous system in some way. Most people are going to take a deep, a deep breath in some way. There's other things you can do, like engage with your, with your senses, Try to stop and think through things. Choose not to react if there's nothing you have to do. The art of not panicking really comes to the art of learning not to react impulsively. But you need to, depending on the moment and what's happening in that mm-hmm. moment, mm-hmm. would be your your appropriate response to that, right? So if there's not a direct threat, threat. yeah, yep. right? But you, you the, the, uh, it's a perceived threat, right? We're talking about perceived threat where you... There's nothing you can do about it in that particular moment. Remember, if it's a true threat, you're running or you're right. fighting, right? So does that induce panic? So yeah. like if you're, if you're in a crowd, mm-hmm. you know, at a concert, and all of a sudden the crowd starts turning and running, yeah. and they're panicking, Yep, you panic in that moment. Yep, too. you run. You run. You run. You don't stop to think about what to do next. <laughs> you know, it's automatic. You are running. It's a real genuine threat, and our body is designed to be able to respond to those situations. But when we're talking about this emotional discontrol, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about reacting when a comedian makes fun of our wife. Right? Yeah. Like he could, he was unable to stop and think through consequences and choose the best response. You know, so he put himself at risk. If he was somebody else, that's simple assault. Right there. Yeah, everybody else. He's He's got a history, though. And there's a history there, too, Be, between Chris well, Rock a, and his wife. What, yes. Yeah. I don't know it. Yeah, she, um, uh, during the 2016 Academy Awards, that was when... Um, the, a lot of the uh, black actors black actors decided not to attend because um, they were boycotting it, right? Because there, the nominees weren't there. There wasn't enough uh, uh, equal representation, especially from the, the Academy. And Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett not attending the Academy Awards. She was boycotting it. And he basically said, like, well, she wasn't invited, like that type of joke. Okay. Um, so there's a history there where maybe... Will said something to him in the past, like if you make talk about my wife again, yeah, I'm but gonna he, laughed, smack he was laughing at the joke. All right, so th- this brings us into a, a, a more interesting kind of dialogue about society. Are we thin-skinned, right? Like that's the that's the other thing. Like, are we more reactive because we are more sensitive? So one of the talking points I had for this was to ask whether or not correlation is there with upbringing, and now you can you know, talk about society, the way that we're raising individuals. Are we raising, are are we raising them to be more um, panic prone versus less? Well, do you remember sticks and stones won't break my bones, will break my bones, but names will never hurt me? Yeah. Like that's out the window, right? There is, there's a message to that, right? In response to someone, someone calls you names, someone bullies you verbally, no, you can't be hurt. Names can't hurt you. That's right. I have big ears. <laughs> well, not, wait. I grew up having people make fun your of Your head ears. grew now to, to fit the size of your ears. But do you... Re- Story time? Story time. What? You want to tell it or you want me to tell it? Well, I, I bet you remember it more clearly because, you know, it was painful for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sean, tell us. Um, I'm going to say I was in first grade. Kindergarten? You're young, yeah. Yeah, it was really young. Um, living in New Jersey, we hadn't moved to Pennsylvania yet. My first time getting onto a school bus. <laughs> first time getting onto a school bus, and you know, Big Brother Rogers on the bus with all of his friends, and um, the whole bus started calling me Dumbo. Yeah. And who started that chant? I don't, it was not me. 
<laughs> You're so full of it. I, it absolutely was not me. Really? I, I, yeah, I, I, it's funny how you remember those things. <laughs> Here's how I remember it: um, that I I felt bad that I couldn't do anything to stop it. I was young, and I remember my dad like talking to me about the the value of sticking up for family. And I remember how bad I felt that I didn't do anything about it. I remember it being you starting it. Well, of course you do, because you think <laughs> everything is my fault. But like, it's a completely different situation because I, it's almost embedded in, and I, you know, you learn from stuff like that because that, that's probably my earliest memory of like, I'm supposed to, you know, defend my brother, you know, or, or family member. But I just, it started, it started with, I think, just like a neighborhood friend of ours and then other people joined in, and he was upset. He was really young, and I did nothing about it. To this day, I have a fear of yellow buses. <laughs> <laughs> and my son is playing with a yellow school bus. Every day he taunts me with wheels on the bus go round and round. <laughs> well, what's interesting And you have your panic attacks every night, and the bad dreams and oh, nightmares. That's right. And until you said that, I didn't even notice your ears. Like I wouldn't. Well, I, I've grew. I grew my hair out a little bit longer. My head did get larger. Ears stayed the same size. Interesting. Plus, we do wear these uh, headphones in here, which really. Yeah, you but know. yours are extra large. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know how a lot of people are? You know, are wearing continue to wear masks now out of uh, insecurities of their own face. Right. Like it's like. Sean walks around with headphones on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and earmuffs. It's really cold outside. <laughs> but does that, so that, I mean, those experiences being younger, um, I don't want to get in trauma is something different, but will they? Will, it wasn't will, trauma. I know, I know. But does In that, today's day and age, that would be viewed as dramatic would, in the way people be, are yeah, talking about it. You're right, you're right. But would, would that incident um, nowadays... So let's say you were mm -hmm. young, Sean, right now, be handled differently, you know, from from um, an educational standpoint. Well, I, of course, it would be it's it, it would be bullying. Uh, you know, that those kids might be removed from the bus. Parents would come into school potentially. So then the focus today on that they would have had he would have had ten, fifteen, twenty people saying it's okay, it's okay, Sean. You know, we're working on it, helping him out. Back then you kind of had mom and dad or whoever dealt with this. And then it was like, well, it's over. It's done. I guess what I'm trying to say is the focusing on the issues and problems and all of the support is that helping to create a very panic driven society versus. All right. So here's, a, this is interesting because this is what I've been thinking about, right? It's this idea of perspective taking. Mm -hmm. Okay. So listen to a great podcast of a guy who just got back from Ukraine. He went to Ukraine to kind of volunteer, see what was going on over there, um, supplies, supporting refugees. And he was talking about the horrors of war. And so in Warsaw, Poland, at the train station, it's like a makeshift refugee camp, but they're all women and children because all the men of any certain age are staying back to fight. And in some of the the towns, like uh, the port town of- uh, Mariupol. Mariupol, yeah. Uh, the dead are left in the street because you can't go take the time to bury them um, or, or you'll get killed. And he comes back to the United States and sees the, the relative emotional vulnerability of the the culture of our people based on ultimately what becomes the the privilege of a of a of a of a culture that has all safety and security uh set for them so you get to attend to and think and about things that don't even matter right so like words or your feelings or your identity or your pol things that like don't necessarily matter when you're in an environment like that right and so there's a, a, a resiliency that develops over time through exposure to difficult things and every time you overcome them you feel more capable of dealing with it if you're can't handle being called dumbo by when you're a kid <laughs> right and that's that's trauma then you are not going to be able to handle the adversity and challenges that exist 
in, in life, especially some of the things that, you know, God willing, we never have to, we never have to face. But when you're in a culture where, you know, you can't do a, a speech in school or you can't go to school because you're, you know, you're dealing with a friendship issue or you got a bad grade in, in the test and, or, you know, you're uncomfortable with how somebody's judging you or their political views, we're just becoming awfully, awfully soft and awfully vulnerable and sensitive. So you're going to see an increase of panic about situations we would never panic again. It's a, it's a comedian for God's sakes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, comedians make fun of certain things, right? Was it in bad taste when you're talking about um, a medical condition? Yeah, it's in, in bad taste. Okay. That, that's enough to go up and to physically harm somebody. Like you have become that emotionally soft that you can't manage the emotion around it. And that's what we're seeing in rage culture. We're seeing the reactivity based on things that really have no great value or purpose. And then sometimes we're seeing low reactivity or responses to things of high value and importance. It's really, really difficult to understand, but can only be understood in fragilizing a culture of people. You know, everyone is kind of viewed as a victim to somebody or something. And that certainly frames your perceptions and it frames how you view your existence and your, and your place in this world. If you're a victim to everyone else, then if you're judged in some way or a name is called or you, or you think that there's a perceived, uh, there's some form of oppression based upon you, you can ruminate on it. And then little things that represent it can set you off in a way that wouldn't be understood generations ago. So that sensitivity is certainly a factor, I think, in emotional reactivity. I'm trying to think of what my response was in that moment with the whole Dumbo thing. Do you, re- do you remember what I did? We got off the bus, you were crying. Did I at one point punch you in the nose on the bus? That is a different, that's a different story. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> all right, nice. never mind. I don't want to go there. That, very, very you're, different You're like blending memories. stories together. Well, it's all coming back to me now. But wait. You used to bottle things up. You punched him in the nose? On the bus, and I remember him threatening to say I was going to get thrown out of school or thrown out, thrown off the bus, and then I realized I had done something wrong. But I don't I don't know what, yeah. what that was about. Let's, I let's mean, put that one to the side. That's brothers being brothers, that, I think. Yeah, yeah. that was. So I, I, I cried, um, and that was the first time I was ever on the bus in front of all those people. I like, don't know if it was the first time, Sean. Like I think that blends together. Probably, yeah. yeah. I, I remember getting in trouble for not doing anything. How did I brat it on you? Is that what ended up happening? Well, no, I think I came home told we both came off the bus and you were crying. Uh, I, I mean, I verified the story, Yeah, you know, and you know who our dad was. He's, he's going to look at me. You didn't do anything about it. You mm-hmm. know, that, like, did you ever, as you were growing up then say after that incident, I mean, it's hard to remember, but do you can I I said to you Kelly, guys there's last been so night, many incidents I know but I said to you guys last night in a text I feel knowing both of you that um you do handle panic well you have to I mean you're running businesses I would here. say over time right okay right? so from that moment did you feel that the panic after that bullying moment for example did you feel as if the next time that somebody would say something were you scared that somebody would say something were you I know that's so long ago, but it, yeah, it's so it's so long ago. Um, I don't know. I don't think I've ever really had true panic, to be honest with you. Not like a a, a, tr- a real. So panic. Oh, young, you forget? Oh no, not another one. Oh, well, you forget the week of your wedding? Oh, that's a that was that, anxiety, though, wasn't it? That's a panic attack. You had a panic attack before your wedding. I did. That's right. Because I, I had to come in and kind of coach you through that it. That was the next day. Wait, what the, happened? The, the night before when uh, a bunch of us went uh, down into town to grab some drinks at a, um, at a bar, I, I did. I, had the, I was sweating. You were sweating and almost like um, dry heaving, like you were dizzy. That was the next day, yeah. But I think that was just <laughs> wedding anxiety, like everything but, that was going but around. But the yeah. intensity of it was panic. That the night before was worse. I felt like I was going to faint, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was concerned. I didn't know if you were going to make it to the uh, altar there. Well, it was we were we were at a destination wedding, so I had nowhere to go. <laughs> 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 Maybe that's why I had, I had no control. So there, was no, the there was no escape. <laughs> there was no. <laughs> there was no exit. Yeah, I, th- that's a horrible feeling. 
It is a horrible feeling. Yeah. yeah. And you and you can't control that. Once you're in a in that state of a panic attack, it's so. So you want to know what's uh, interesting? Do you know how we treat panic attacks? How we, we induce the feeling. It's called interoceptive exposure. So somebody who um, has developed the fear of that those sensations and they panic in response to it, we repeatedly expose them. So we make them dizzy, hot, sweaty. Um, so I I have taken a heater spun them around, um, had them breathe through a straw so their breathing would get shallow. You, in, hmm. you induce a, a, a panic response and have them respond to it. So, you know, you have to change your interpretation of the sensation. You have to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, you have to refocus your mind. So you train them to respond to it. And it responds really, really quickly. It's highly effective. You know how the medical... Uh, establishment uh, treats panic uh, medication. medication it gives them a controlled substance that's highly addictive do you know how many people come to us because they got addicted to like what, what xanax is, okay. or or clonopin or other benzodiazepines it's uh it is galactically stupid i i it's, it's so hard for me to fathom my mind around it um how how a medical professional can be shaped to believe that that's the most effective response when there is an, uh, a very safe, effective, and relatively short and easy treatment for it. Um, so then, you know, the act of turning to that drug, it becomes the problem. And because people are scared of the feeling, they take the, they keep taking the drug to not feel it, and they get they get hooked. And then what happens is it's uh, the the drug creates such dependence, you require more and more of the drug to get the same results. So you have what's called rebound anxiety. Basically it's withdrawal. It's a, does a benzo get, get them into a state of euphoria? Like, um, it's an extreme relaxation. Okay. Like it's very effective. Like if, when are the, when do you take a benzodiazepine? Let's say you were claustrophobic and you had to go in to get like a CAT scan or MRI. Right. Perfect. Mm-hmm. You take it one, one time you do that once when, you know, whenever you get that, that procedure done or, you have to fly and you're deathly fear, you know, fear of flying and, and you're claustrophobic taking that Xanax that one time. It's not a treatment for someone who's just anxious and worried a lot or has panic disorder because then you're just creating drug addiction. So doctors should be like, well, I'll prescribe you one pill because you're going on one experience versus I'm going to prescribe you a 30 day supply. It should never be prescribed for more than like two weeks. In, in our center, I we, would think it would only be used in an emergency situation. That's right? what they kind of, they, that's what they say it is. We have had, I have seen uh, like 24, 25 year olds who've been on Xanax for 10 years from their doctor, like given as 15 year old or a 16 year old. It's criminal. I remember um, at the wedding, someone offered me like, Hey, do you, do you want a, a Xanax to just relax a little bit so you can enjoy your wedding? I was like, oh. God no! I was af- I was more afraid about how I would respond to something that I've never taken before on the day of my wedding. I was like, no, 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 no. That's I'm what fine. whiskey's for. That's I did drink whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get too relaxed. You'll trip over your ears. Now I can laugh. Did that, now. did that trigger you in any way? No, not at all. I mean, you grow up in our family. You you develop some some resilience. To that's what. That's why I brought this up, and I said to you guys last night. I felt so um, based off of the we we do believe that um, upbringing can can have um, an impact on individuals' rea- um, panic reaction. It's a reaction to things that happen to you, right? Panic. Of course, yeah. Um, Shaping your perceptions of it. Is there a correlation then to, I'm going to get a bit conspiratorial, so don't look at me, but I'm, I'm being very serious because of the medications and everything that's out there. Mm-hmm. Is there a correlation to media and, and things like that, wanting people to feel scared and to want to create a sense of panic in their lives? I have a hard time seeing it any other way. When, when there is a financial or power benefit from uh, being able to either one, sell a product or two, sell an idea or, or, or something that, a, a fear essentially, you know, whenever there's someone can really benefit from it, you have to be able to understand 
that that can be purposeful. Listen, that the drug Xanax or any benzodiazepine, if it's just used for those situations, there's not much of a market for it. So if it's just like, first of all, it is a controlled substance. I mean, it's right there on the package about the dangers of the prolonged use. But if it was limited to only those really unique situations, those short-term situations, very small percentage of the population, it's not even worth it for the for the drug company to kind of produce it because it you cannot you don't have a, a large enough customer base. And listen, I've been uh, I've been this is on our mainstream news. I don't know if you guys have been following this that um, countries who are you know that were in competition with or hostile to the United States like. Uh, like communist China, for example, there's really good evidence that they use social media as a way to try to target our, our generation, our younger generation in mm-hmm. a way that creates emotional fragility. Yeah. Um, TikTok is a, is, is a great example. I think there was a, um, like a TikTok trend about slapping a teacher. Mm-hmm. You, know, I don't, you know, I don't know if you've seen that. You know, that's, a, that's another way to undermine a, a structure in a society around respect for authority, emotional control, all the things they value in that society and that are certainly related to like a, a strong economy and a strong military, they are being undermined in our, in our culture. So we, you know, we are becoming more and more fragilized as evidenced by the mental health crisis that exists. The other thing I wanted to bring up about panic, and so you had a, you talk about sometimes in other podcasts about this idea of exposure therapy, which can be a podcast on its own. If I'm exposed, so say I pan, okay, so I'm in the middle of the ocean, I panicked. If I expose myself to that again and again and again and again, mm-hmm. I obviously have to diminish that, that panic feeling over the course of time so long as I keep doing this over and over again. You learn to self-regulate. Yeah. How do you think uh, the Navy SEALs are trained? Right? Have you ever seen some of the, um, you know, the videos of some of the things that they do, like the underwater submersion? Yeah, that's crazy. And, right? The, and they say that they're, they're pushing you to panic and then they want, they, you have to self-regulate. So you have to, you have to be able to think through in a life and death situation. They train it. And we're adaptable that way. That the more that we're exposed to something that creates that intense emotion, we learn. We learn how to self-regulate, that the emotion isn't dangerous, how to focus our mind and how to get through it to the point where you've done it so many times, there's no strong emotional reaction at all. Public speaking is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. You might, when you first originally start public speaking, you might have a panic-like feeling of high anxiety and you might not perform quite as well doing a podcast yeah remember the first time we got in here to record a podcast how nervous and we didn't know what we were doing and there was definitely anxiety leading up to it and even hearing your own voice through a microphone is is it was strange yeah Yeah. and now it's just a a regular conversation right yeah it's it's i kind of like it's it's kind of like jumping in a cold pool after you know a few minutes your body just adapts to it like Mm -hmm. kind of like seek out homeostasis so, Sean, after bringing that up, then, if exposure works and it can help, tell me why, because I work in the educational system, we are way going, we're, we're, we're not even close to that. We're doing the opposite. We're saying, protect at all costs, do not expose, let's, let's not let them go through what they had to go through. Why is that? Don't we always try and attempt new things and realize the harm that we're doing. And then we have to kind of go back and fix the mistakes we've made in the past. I mean, it happens with every generation, right? Um, disciplined. Look uh, at this. Like this, this goes back to your positive intent, right? Like the, the intention is something positive. I just don't believe that because smart people know better, right? Like this conversation that we're having today is, isn't it not I just, I just common? Don't. Isn't it not common sense? Is it not common sense not to panic? No. The way to actually teach emotional control or real resiliency. We're, you know, we had this previous podcast on our last one. We were talking about centuries of wisdom. It's not new. 
It's not like we're evolving to treat people as emotionally fragile and emotionally sensitive and to identify with their race or their gender or their sexual orientation or to treat them as fragile beings who need a disability or to be like, or an accommodation if they feel anxious and doing a report in front of the school. These aren't, these, these things, it's not like this is new science or new information. This is ideology for a purpose. I I think, um, I think that often these things happen because there's someone who is put in a position where he can influence a change in curriculum. He thinks he or she thinks back to their own personal experiences of how they maybe felt inferior or, or uncomfortable and they're trying to protect others from what they were feeling. So they start changing curriculum, they start changing approaches, they start doing attempting new things. They sell packaged in service products. <laughs> yeah. And, and then all of a sudden it, it starts, um, you know, snowballing into other, other places. And then other schools start doing it and they're trying to say that it, it's working. And then they realize that they're just doing more harm and they have to go back and, and, but isn't it crazy that what works is actually free it's to, you know, but I mean, maybe some training has to be done, but it's to expose, to expose in a way again and again and again and say, listen, you know, you're going to be okay. Let's keep doing this. Let's keep going yeah. through this. Well, the thing is that what Sean's missing is there's a difference between ideology and science. So there is a science and has been of, of human resiliency and, and, mm-hmm. and strength. Like we know what it requires to have a mentally stable and healthy culture. Um, we know what it takes to be able to, to raise and develop children who are confident and, um, can overcome adversity and challenges like that, that that's known now not saying that's always easy to do because human beings are flawed and there's abuse and there's neglect and obviously protecting kids from abuse and neglect are, are important but at some point there was a genuine shift in american culture where we moved away from those principles well yes um i agree with everything you're saying though but i just i don't i don't when it comes to ideology, maybe I'm, I'm misinterpreting how you're saying it. I just feel like when it comes to um, approaches towards overcoming some of the challenges or poor outcomes that have existed. So if, if there's a high suicide rate or depression, um, they look at the, the result of that being caused by like bullying yeah, uh, so it's always let's, external. Let's 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 squell down all those things that are causing these bad things to happen. Right. That's our way of of protecting it, and 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 then we end up causing more problems. Good point. And so, what are we saying, right? Or what has been the message in some of our podcasts, and especially when we start talking about like things like stoicism or or this kind of wisdom? It's like that that adversity or those challenges, those things are going to happen. What we manage or what we control is our reactions to them. We build people up to be strong in their responses to them to be skillful and effective in being able to do that. Not to say that you are a victim to these circumstances, right? Those who anger me become my master. And to be honest with you, I think the whole reason why this is the way that it is and we um, is the whole school shooting phenomenon that happens in this country, right? You go back to 1998, 99, 99. Columbine. From started. there on out, there has been this effort to, why were those kids doing that? What can we do to protect others from falling into this uh, this cycle um, and try and protect everyone else? And that's, I, I believe, yeah. every little thing that has fallen and since then is a result of that. I find it interesting that parents are always looking for a solution from outside resources well, when in reality- blame teachers. Yeah, they blame everyone. They blame yeah. teachers. They blame government. They blame local government. But then they don't look at themselves. Either they think that they're the perfect, you know, uh, parent, or they just say, when something bad happens and I panic, somebody has to solve this for me. And it's like, well, just be a good parent. Like, mm-hmm. teach your kids that struggle is okay. Teach your, you know, everything we've discussed. But they don't know anymore. I know. They're, that- no, they're, they're, they're confused. They're confused on what is right because those messages have been so mixed. People are just following some rule book that was given to them by I don't know who. Whatever this ideology was developed around fragility and fear, they're following some rule book. 
So they are confused and they're Very. not able to trust their guts anymore. Like, you know how I many times I said, like, I know that's, I know that's the wrong thing to do, but I were just told this. You lose your ability to even trust your own instincts, your instincts to protect your own children. There's, I've, I've, known, I've known a couple of teachers over the course of the several years that actually try to diagnose on open house night the parents that their child is depressed or that they're ADHD. There's been acknowledgement of that. Like that is just insane. Why would, why would you ever do that? It's, it's crazy. I actually think life now, life now, if I, if I were going to give advice to anyone is like, it's not about the skill sets that you have. It literally is about how controlled you are when struggle and crisis come your way. I, I agree. And um, there's that, that very, I'd say, famous uh, speech. Uh, Jordan Peterson was on an interview and he was talking about children in those developmental years. And lots of people use clips of it and it goes through social media. Mm -hmm. They put it over like yeah. a soundtrack of their yep. kids. And he said those first four years yeah. are so important and they're gone. He's like, they're so in a blink of eyes. They're so gone. And um, right now, you know, my wife's reading all these books about... Uh, parental styles, you know, of raising a toddler and how you should do things. And it, it gets to me, there's all these methods and I'm just like, whatever, you know, for me, it's just very simple. Like you respect your wife and you, you, you love each other. You, um, you will let your kid do things independently as much as you can. And then you just kind of step in if they're going to be hurting themselves. Uh, but they still have to learn that mistakes are going to happen. And if they get hurt, that's a learning opportunity. I don't know why it gets so complicated with all these methods of people coming up with these techniques of like, this is what you should do. This is how you should say it. This is how you shouldn't say it. All it does is confuse the hell out of me. Well, it's kind of like, going to be human. It's just kind of like big pharma. I mean, making money. Some of these packaged books and things like that are the same way. They think they have this idea of... It extends way, yeah, beyond, it, it extends way beyond that. I mean, it, when you talk about the academic industry and the publisher parish, like... You know, you are, you're always trying, you're ha you have to be, you're survived by a theory or an idea. You know, there is a paralyzation through overanalyzation. And there, and I, I agree with Sean, it, it is about getting back to trusting, you know, your instincts mm -hmm. and for us to be connected and grounded in, in reality. There are some things that just hold true and understanding what love actually is. You know, there's the golden rule matters. You know, treat others in the way that you want to be treated. There are consequences to your actions. Know them. The world will not bend to you. You know, these are things that I'm communicating mm -hmm. with my kids. You have to find a way to make your place in this world. You have to be able to think through who you are and, you and how you react and respond to the world. There is nothing that is going to be provided to you without you earning it or hard work. You have a purpose in this world. Figure that purpose out. Make something of it and know that there is competition. There are other people who are going to want to do that same thing. Make your mark on this earth. Be kind, right? You care about relationships and people in this world. Learn. If relationships aren't working, it is because you are doing things to push people away. Learn how to relax, have hobbies, have fun, be entertained, right? There's some simple things, you know, that we have to get back to. And, you know, I don't know what happened in the education field. I was part of it during the transition, but there was a shift where um, the, the accountability from the student got shifted on the, on the teachers in a way that was not equitable, right? Where if a, if a kid did not perform well, it was the teacher's fault or it was the environment's fault. Yeah, standardized and, testing. And it's certainly the pendulum swung. Like there is a dialectical balance that certainly exists where teachers can be responsible and accountable for being better educators and can understand their role in kids while at the same time not removing any accountability or responsibility from kids and we're trying to shape and develop them. One of my thoughts and some things that I tell my own kids all the time, you have to learn how to deal with difficult people, right? Like the world is not going to bend to you. Yeah, maybe this teacher, uh, you know, isn't the best teacher. And maybe you had some problems. What are you going to do about it? How do we figure it out, right? So we're limiting and impairing their ability to, to problem solve. 
How does this relate to, to, to panic? Well, because if you're running in and you're saving them and you're doing everything for them, how are they going to be exposed to those situations where they can regulate their emotions and solve a problem and act and be relatively calm in that situation, a high-stress situation? Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.